Welcome, everyone. Hey, it's great to see your faces. Thanks for coming out. It was a hot day out there today. <laughs> and I know it took a little bit of extra work to make it all the way in here, but isn't it great to be here? And God's presence is here with us. And thankfully, God's presence tonight also includes air conditioning. <laughs> Thank you, God, for air conditioning. Can you imagine the days that it didn't happen? God, the heat of God would minister to your spirit. Wow, what an amazing time to be in Jerusalem. We are so excited to be here tonight. And I believe that the Lord is here with us as well. And that's what we can be excited about. Because I believe that each time as we gather together and his presence comes, he has this moment on his calendar for days in, in, in advance, weeks in advance, months in advance. He was looking at this moment together with you, and he's been looking forward to it. Today I get to meet with them. Today they're going to be in my house. I get to worship together with them. This is a great moment as we gather together with the Lord. Well, welcome. Welcome, King of Kings family. Welcome all of our friends who are joining us uh, from around the world. Hopefully, wherever you're at, it's a little bit cooler. Uh, we're not so used to these kind of temperatures in Jerusalem, but we're excited that you're here together with us tonight. And uh, we have joining us Japan, Malta, Kenya, and uh, Singapore, and those are just a few of the countries. Guys, welcome, and uh, welcome. thanks for coming to Jerusalem. Now put it on your calendar. I know you just saw it in the uh, announcements just now, but put it on your calendar. This Friday night, August 18th, the Kabbalat Shabbat, or the welcoming in of the Shabbat. You don't want to miss that. This is our last time, probably for the summer, that we're going to be able to do it outside, under the stars, and uh, be in a picnic environment. So come join us, uh, bring your own meats. We will have a wonderful time of just saying the blessings in the Shabbat, and then barbecuing our own meats, and visiting and getting to know each other, and making our uh, relationships stronger. So come this Friday night, 6 to 8.30. Everyone's welcome. We're going to be in the park right behind the King David Hotel. So if you don't know where that is, Google it up. You'll find it. We're in the park right behind there. Bloomfield Park, 6 to 8.30. It's going to be a wonderful time. Well, we had a, an exciting event that took place within our King of Kings family this week. As you know, Pastor Chad has been traveling, and he's in the United States. This week, he was in Florida, and he got to meet up with... Uh, is it supposed to be popping like that, Tyro? He was in Florida, got to meet up with Pastor Chad and, excuse me, with Pastor Ray and Nikki Ramirez as they were launching for the very first time, King of Kings Community Melbourne, KKCM, there in Florida. And we're really excited for them as the community continues to grow and as we have a different community that we get to grow out into there in Florida. So we want to keep Pastor Ray and Nikki in prayer. And I want to encourage you to keep Pastor Chad and Rebecca in prayer as they're finishing up some of the work that they have and some meetings. Then they'll get to have a couple of weeks of vacation and then they're going to be back with us at the beginning of September. So let's keep them in prayer as those things are taking place. So I want to know, I want to ask you, if you needed to make a list of every single thing that you know about God, everything that you've experienced, everything that you have read, that's been told to you, that you know, you had to make a list about God. And if I told you that your list, the length of your list, even the longest list in this room 
even if we took everybody's list and made one big, long list of everything that we know about God, everybody online gave us their list. We had one gigantic, big list. And if I told you that that longest, gigantic list was still only a fraction of what the total is of what we know about God, what would you say? How does that make you feel? I know for some of us, that thought we get really excited about, wow, there's just so much to this big, gigantic God. Uh, can I have a different mic, Tyro? Would you bring me a different mic? And I'm going to turn this guy off because he keeps snapping and popping. And then if I told you that that list was just a fraction of the total of who God is, There we go. Some of us get excited about that thought. Wow, what an amazing, gigantic God. But lots of us, and probably all of us at different times go, oh my goodness, I, I don't know everything there is to know about God. And, and honestly, I think we deceive ourselves and we, we have this idea that we, we pretty much know everything there is to know about God. We, we, we kind of say, we never would say this out loud, but we kind of say to ourselves, you know, I, I've been around the block for a while. I know God, I know the word. I've been reading the word for my whole life and I'm pretty confident that of all the people that are on the earth, I know God. But then Isaiah tells us how God sees this. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not, are not your ways. They're, they're not even close to what my ways are like. He says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Yeah, you say, I, I know that, but still, I know a lot about God. I've been reading the word, I've memorized tons of scriptures, and then Paul reminds us how much we don't know. He says, we know only a portion of the truth. And what we say about God is always incomplete. We see through a glass dimly. We only know in part. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the things that God has prepared for those that love him. See, as difficult as it is for us, we need to acknowledge that the things that we know about God are slim. We just don't know all there is to know. And now, this is the funny thing. We don't even know what we don't know. I love this quote by Donald Rumsfeld, the former U.S. Secretary of Defense, says, there are the known knowns. Those are the things that we know that we know. There are the known unknowns, and that is to say, those are the things that we know that we don't know. And then there's the things that are unknown unknowns. <laughs> These are the things that we don't even know that we don't know. And this is our reality as we look at our relationship with God. There's so much about him that we don't know. And yet when we take a, a look at this reality for a couple of moments, this, this fact that we don't know the unknowns, if we flip that around to the other side, there's still so much for us to learn and to grow and to get to know about our God. Our God is so big and so past finding out and eternal and complex and intricate 
and mysterious. There are things about our kingdom life, there are things about our relationship with the Lord that are still unknown to everyone. Things that we haven't even explored or discovered yet. We have so much to look forward to, so much in our future, so many treasures and wonderful surprises here on earth and in eternity as we worship the Lord that God has in store for us, for those that love him and call on his name. But here's what concerns me. It's not the, the unknowns, the things that we don't know that we don't know. It's how much we get wrong about the things that we do know or that we think that we know. I heard a troubling statistic this week. Maybe you've heard this statistic. Three out of four people have a non-benevolent view of God. And the statistic isn't broken down into believing and non-believing. This is everybody, all peoples. Three out of four peoples don't have a, a good view of God. That means one person understands who God is. That's pretty fascinating. 77% of the people that were polled, again, about three quarters, believe that God is harsh, he's angry, he's distant, and he's cruel. Let's just soak that in for just a moment. If that's true, and I think it probably is, it's, if it's not, it's really close. That would mean that three quarters of this room, three quarters of the people that are joining us online have an inaccurate or hurtful or incomplete concept of who God is. Like Paul or Saul that we looked at last week, we know about God, but we don't really know God. We don't know his true character. And this has been our motivation as we've stepped into this summer series that we're doing as we're calling it Deconstructing God, God's True Character. Our aim and our goal is that we would know at the end of the summer, we would know more the true character of God. We would know what God's character is really like, not what we've built up our false narratives, not what we've been told that we hold on to that is inaccurate and uh, unreal concepts of our God. To help us do this, we've been discussing this God-initiated process in our lives that we've been calling deconstruction. Now, the world likes to use this word as a way of describing someone who's walking away from their faith. They're deconstructing the Christianity that they know. They're deconstructing their religion or they're deconstructing their relationship with God. In most cases, this is someone who gets to a point in their life where they're, they're saying to God, I don't want to follow that way any longer. I don't want to follow that pattern any longer. In fact, deconstructionism in our world is saying the world is wrong because it's been too influenced by Christianity and by a Judeo-Christian ethics. And so we are going to deconstruct that world and build a better world, build a new world. But we've grabbed a hold of this world de deconstruction, and we've been looking at this process where God steps into our lives, where he continues to move in our lives, maturing us and growing us in our spirits and giving us a, a broader and a bigger and a better understanding, a truthful understanding of who he is as he deconstructs in us those false understandings, those wrong beliefs, and everything in our life that is shakable, 
and unstable and untrue and incomplete, God comes into our lives and deconstructs those in every situation, every circumstances, and every season of our lives to build up then a greater and a better understanding of who he truly is to help us know him better. And this is actually a, a truth about God that we need to grab a hold of. It's important for us to understand that God from the beginning of time and, and relationship with mankind has always been working to reveal the truths about who he is, how he feels about us, how he's working in the world, how he's working in us. This is at the core of everything that God does and everything that God has done and in all of his interactions with mankind from the beginning of time. And we need to understand this truth about our God. This is our first key point tonight. God has always been at work. Underline always. God has always been at work in everything that he does and in all of his interactions with mankind to reveal to us the greater truths about his character and his unconditional love. This is something that God has always been doing and he always does in every situation, every circumstance, and every season in our lives. He's not trying to hide anything from us. There are some hidden secrets that we won't know until eternity, but he's not trying to hide who he is from us. In fact, if we look at Yeshua's earthly ministry, all of his interactions, all of his conversations and his relationships, his miracles that he performed, all of the parables that he told, all the sermons that he preached, even all of the rebukes that he gave to those that were fighting against him. In every one of those things, Yeshua's primary mission, his primary task is to reveal who God is by removing all of the clutter that had gathered up around the name of our God, had cluttered up in the hearts of the people. And he deconstructs, Yeshua deconstructs all of those lies and false narratives and man-made theologies and rules and understandings. And Yeshua begins to pull back the curtain, fully revealing everything that we need to know and that God wants us to know about his heart and about his character. Listen to Yeshua's last prayer. This is after his crucifixion. He's with his disciples and he's talking to the father and he begins to describe this mission that he's been on. And he says, now this is eternal life that they, talking about the disciples, that they know you, the only true God and Yeshua, the Messiah, whom you, God, have sent. I've revealed you to those whom you gave to me out of the world. Then the world will know that you, God, sent me and have loved me even as you have loved them. Righteous Father, through, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you've sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This was the core of Yeshua's ministry on earth, to make known who he was, who God was. Yes, his ministry was to 
free mankind from sin, was to destroy death, was to bring God's salvation to the, to the earth and to mankind. But in each one of these circumstances, his core mission was to make God known so that we individually and personally could enter into relationship with God and know him more. One of Yeshua's most memorable and most poignant relationships or interactions during his ministry, and one that we still talk about till today because of all the deconstruction that takes place in this story and in this relationship. One of my favorite characters from the Bible and a person that God initially chooses to begin to pull back that curtain, that dark black curtain that hid God from the man, from mankind and from the understanding of mankind. The one who then launches, if you will, Yeshua's public ministry, none other than the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. And we can read about her in chapter four of John, and we're not gonna actually read through the story tonight. Rather, I'm gonna assume that you know the story, and I'm gonna encourage you, if you don't know the story, to go read from chapter four of John. But of all the people that God could have chosen, that Yeshua could have chosen to launch his public ministry on the earth, this outcast of a woman would have been our last choice, for sure. She has so many strikes against her she's, that it's difficult for us to understand why God would even have chosen her to associate with her in this worldwide event of pulling back the curtain and revealing who God is and his mission of salvation to mankind. And yet, this is who God chooses. This woman who's not even fully Jewish. She's broken and rejected and outcast of a woman, but God chooses. And we'll see in a moment that God chooses in every situation the least of the least of the least on purpose to break down, to deconstruct all of the barriers, all of the rules, all of the ideals, all of the expectations that we put up in place, that we put in front of, and in culture and society and religion to describe who God is. But for us to fully understand the gravity of what God is doing here, we need to take a couple of moments to describe who the Samaritans were. They were a half-breed. They weren't fully Jewish. They weren't fully Gentile, but a half-breed that arose as a result of the Assyrians relocating other nations, Gentile nations, into the towns of Samaria. When they relocated several Jewish uh, population into other nations. They brought in, as they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, several Gentile nations. And the already uh, corrupted Judaism that the northern tribes were worshiping God and worshiping other uh, idols, this already corrupted Judaism becomes even more corrupted with the, the mixed beliefs of all of those that come in. And this new Samaritan religion if you will, continues to worship God as they worship other things, but it's a mix of traditional Judaism and some other ideas from other theologies that are brought in from the other people. And the Samaritans then see themselves as, as descendants of Jacob, descendants of, of the people of God. And they see themselves as the truer 
worshipers or the followers of God. But in the eyes of the Jewish people, the eyes of the followers of Yeshua, in the eyes of the religious and in the eyes of all of the Jewish people at that time, the Samaritans were seen as a disgusting affront to Judaism because they weren't really following Judaism. They are as unclean and as forbidden as the Gentiles, but even more despised and totally reviled because of their departure from the true Judaism, the so-called corrupted worship of God. This is what they can't stand to look at. So that to interact in any way with a Samaritan, to talk to them in any way, was seen as a shame and a disgrace, a complete defilement of everything that's sacred, everything that's holy, everything that's true. And this is who Yeshua goes right straight towards and begins to engage with this woman and to begins to engage with a, a revealing of who he is. He's the Messiah. He begins to tell her who he is and she's the first one to go out and to share that good news with others and to say, hey, come and look. I think this, this is the Messiah starting that message of salvation, starting that message of forgiveness. But this lady isn't just a Samaritan first. She's a woman. And in that time and in that culture, she was already a second-class citizen. But you add to that, now she's a Samaritan. She has two huge strikes against her. But even more than that, even more damning than all of that is her own status within her own community. Because this is a woman that's burned every bridge, that's hijacked every relationship she's had. She's been rejected by her family. She's been rejected by friends. She probably doesn't have any more friends. She's one of those people that is outspoken and continues to say things that are hurtful and mean. And so nobody wants to be around her. Nobody wants to spend any time with her. And they, she has been abandoned and left alone. She's gone through five husbands and the guy that she's with now, she's not even married to him. And she was literally in every way at the bottom of the bottom of the human trash heap, discarded by her family, discarded by her friends, discarded by her religion, her community, and her culture. And nobody needed her, and nobody wanted her in any way. And worst of all, she had disqualified herself. She believed the lie that she was of no value because of her past, because of her family situation, because of her sins, her failures, because of the things that she has done, because of the things that she hasn't done. And she's convinced, she's believed the lies, she's of no value, especially to a holy God. She's been told over and over again that she's of no value, and she believes it. And she's been told by her culture and her religion God doesn't want to have anything to do with you. And she believed it. Based on everything that she's experienced, she's of no value. But then we see in the story that God 
steps into her life and God loves her. As Yeshua begins to engage with her in a lively conversation, begins to engage with real relationship with her, valuing her as a person. And he allows her, God allows her to serve in a very unique role, one of a kind role, as she is the first messenger, the first carrier of the good news. As she begins to pull back the curtain and reveal this is who God is. And this is the grand deconstruction that we find in the story of the Samaritan woman. God breaking down all of the barriers, breaking down all the rules and all the expectations, culturally, spiritually, religiously, sacredly, Yeshua doing the unthinkable and the unacceptable on so many levels as he instead begins to put on full display so that the whole world can see bigger than life, his love, God's love, his full embrace of anyone, his full embrace of everyone, regardless of their background, of their status, of their race or their religion, their failures and their sins, the things that they've done to disqualify themselves, the things that they haven't done. And Yeshua embraces, and like a giant billboard sign, for everyone to see then, and for everyone still to see to today, this is what God's love looks like for mankind. It was the first time that people had ever seen it played out like that. And this is our second key point tonight. God's love has always been extended to anyone and to everyone who will accept it. To the worst of worst sinners, to the least of the least humans in society, all of those who've disqualified themselves and everyone who the world has thrown away and rejected. No one is exempt from God's love. And it's worth pointing out, just for the notes, that all through Yeshua's ministry, not once, but three times, he elevates the status of this despised, detested, deplorable Samaritan people. Right here in this story, as he launches his ministry, as he engages with this lowest of the low of all Samaritans, but then he spends two whole days with the Samaritan community. The first community where he goes to preach the gospel and to share the word and, uh, of God's true salvation. And later then, the parable of the good Samaritan. It was the first time anybody had heard those two words put together. A Samaritan isn't good in their eyes. And this is the first time they hear the story of a what? A good Samaritan as he helps the traveler on the road. And finally, the story of the 10 lepers that get healed by Yeshua. The one leper that comes back is Samaritan to say thank you and to show gratitude and to say thank you to God. Yeshua spends his whole ministry on earth deconstructing all of our man-made rules, all of our expectations, all of our theologies that we've put into place to fully reveal the whole heart of our God. As we look at the interactions with the Samaritan woman, a couple of other ideas open up in this uh, look at deconstruction. 
that are important for us to grab tonight. And so the first one that I want us to look at is this idea of asking and having questions for God. See, as we get to know this Samaritan woman, something about her personality begins to stick out as she's bantering with Yeshua back and forth. And as the conversation gets going, she doesn't just sit there quietly and listen to everything she has to say. Rather, she actually begins in a kind of combative way to respond to everything that he's saying. She's not going to uh, sit there and just take everything that he says at face value. She has lots of questions. She just starts pelting him with question after question. She just keeps digging in and asking and prying and exploring. And as everything that Yeshua says in response to her only piques more curiosity, more intrigue and more frustration and maybe even some anger as the things in her heart and in her life begin to get stirred up. And she's put on edge And she just keeps shooting questions at Yeshua. Listen to some of these questions, and and I want you to hear the flavor of the questions. She says to him, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? Sir, if you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep, where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as also did his sons and his livestock? Sir, she says to him, give me this water that I won't get thirsty and I won't have to keep coming back here to drink the water as if to say, if you're really having living water, then give me me some of that living water. Oh, she says, so you're a prophet. This is the message version. So you're a prophet. Well, then tell me this. Our ancestors worshiped God at this mountain, but you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place for worship, right? And then as Yeshua continues to engage with her, she goes back into her community. She says to the community, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? She's provocative in all of her questions. She's full of questions. See, God has created us with a curiosity. God has created us with a quest inside. Even I would describe it as a hunger to know the known unknowns and to know the unknown unknowns, to know the truth. I'd like to describe it as a a mental itch. And this mental itch matches the mystery of the God that we serve This is what I mean, that God has designed us to go on hunt with our hearts, to be explorers, to be full of inquiry so that we might explore the great unknown unknowns so that we can find him in those great unknowns so that we can know him in the deeper relationship. I believe that God's desire for us is that we wouldn't be content with things just the way that they are, accept them at face value. It's why we don't have all of the answers. It's why we don't know in full. We only know in part. It's why we only have a a foggy, foggy picture. We can't see the full picture yet because God wants us to discover it. And he's put that thing in our hearts to make us go discover it. In fact, he invites us as we grow in relationship with him, as we grow in our understanding, 
to search out the truth. He invites us to hunt down the treasures and the mysteries that are in the unknown. And then I believe that this is exactly what gets turned on when we walk through a season of deconstruction and our lives get turned upside down. Our, our minds and our hearts get filled with more and more questions. God, why are you doing this? God, why is this happening in my life? God, what am I supposed to learn from this? Why is this happening? But here's our challenge. Somehow within our believing culture, we've said that questioning God, questions of God, questions about our belief, questions about our theology, questioning why we believe, what we believe is bad. Now, no one would say that, but each of us probably know that if you go up to somebody after the service tonight and you say to them, you know, I'm really struggling to understand and I really just don't believe that Yeshua was literally physically raised from the dead. I, I just don't believe it. You're not allowed to ask that kind of question. You're not allowed to make that kind of statement. All the red flags go up. And, and I believe that that's there because the enemy doesn't want us to ask questions. Because as soon as we ask the questions, we're gonna find out the truth. We're gonna discover God. So the enemy's got this, this gag order over us. You're not allowed to ask questions in here. Questions are not allowed. It makes us nervous. We don't know what to do with them. We don't know how to respond. We don't have all the answers, so we get nervous. Don't talk like that. Don't ask those questions. But not God. God loves our questions. Emphasize loves. Wow, they're asking me a question. Wow, they have a question for me. Bring it on. God loves our inquiries. He loves our interactions. He's not put off by them at all all. He is truth. He's not intimidated by your question. Rather, he invites us to bring them all. Listen to, to God's heart in all of these verses. It's to the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the matter of the king. Psalm 22, the poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. The message version says it this way. Down and outers sit at God's table and eat their fill. Everyone on hunt for God is here praising him. Live it up from head to toe. Don't ever quit. Jeremiah says, God speaking to us, you will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found. That's a great promise. Proverbs 8 says, I love those who love me. Those who look for me, find me. Again, another promise. They will receive blessing from the Lord, Psalm 24 says, and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Proverbs 2, my son, 
If you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it, even as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Isn't that beautiful? God's invitation, come, bring me your hardest question. Don't be, God doesn't want us to be satisfied with, well, they said that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, I believe it. He wants us to go, wait a second. How is that possible? Nobody's ever risen from the dead before. What does that mean? How am I supposed to apply that to my life? What does that mean for all of God's children? He doesn't want us to take it at face value, to not be satisfied. He wants us to explore the unknown unknowns until we find him, until we know him. So last February, Melissa and I were invited to attend a four-day couples retreat down in the desert. It was a gracious gift that Pastor Chad actually helped put in place so that we could have a little bit of time off. And during the retreat, we were speaking to some good marriage counseling friends and we were asking them, what are some different ways that we can continue to grow in our intimacy? We've been married for 30 years. How can we continue to grow in in knowing each other? So they gave us a list of 50 questions (sighs) (laughs) that we were supposed to ask each other and and find out more about each other. And I was like, thank you, thank you so much. And on the inside, I'm thinking, I probably know all of the answers already. We've been married for 30 years. What is she gonna tell me that I don't know? Like, oh, I didn't know that. Well, wouldn't you believe it, our very first night, so we go home, and I'm actually excited about it. We, we asked the first question. The first question is, who had the greatest influence in your life? Uh, I don't know that answer about you. Who, who had the greatest influence in your life? There was one answer that I thought, whoa, wow. And as we began to discuss that question and the answer that surrounded it, a ton of other questions came up and a ton of other answers, things that we didn't know about each other. And we sat there and we realized that after 30 years of marriage, we still didn't even know everything about each other. It was wonderful and I highly recommend it. And if you're married and if you want a copy of that, Write to me and I'll send it to you. 50 questions. (sighs) And I promise you, you won't be able to get through them fast. And all of it was unlocked by one simple question. All of the mystery, one simple question. And God invites us to bring all of our questions, all of our doubts, all of our inquiries, all of our skepticism, all of our probes and our examinations of who he is and how does this work and who do you think you are and how, to, how you, God's not intimidated by any of them. And he invites us to bring them so that we can know the truths of our great and mysterious God. So one last thought about the Samaritan woman. This is our second point tonight, third point. And we're not gonna spend a lot of time there, but yet it's a significant part of her story that I think overlaps our story as well. Seems like the Samaritan woman, we probably know somebody like this in our lives, she'd become invisible, unimportant, obscure. She was a nobody. She'd been forgotten. She was unknown. 
She was hidden and she was a non-entity within her culture, within her world, until she meets Yeshua, until God steps into her world and he begins to shake things up. And then she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Have you ever had that experience when you know, all of a sudden you realize God's eye is on you and he knows you and he still loves you? And for the first time in her life, probably, she suddenly becomes known. She suddenly matters. She is seen. She's known. That's the, the ultimate human question. Does anybody know who I am? Suddenly she knows that God knows who she is. And he's embracing her. You see, Yeshua's love for her made her a real person. Made her a person of consequence. And it all happened because God saw her. Knew her. Knew everything that she'd ever done. And he loved her. He loved her enough to actually engage in conversation and relationship with her. Nobody had ever done that before. El Roi, the God who sees me. You see, probably one of the greatest aspects of the seasons of deconstruction that take place in our lives is as we're going through that upheaval in our lives and everything gets turned upside down and God, why is this happening? And what did I do wrong? And what am I supposed to do next? In these tumultuous seasons of life, as the bottom drops out and we're standing there holding the pieces of our lives, God is there and he sees us and he loves us and he knows us better than anyone else. And he continues to embrace us. And he's not put off in any way by the mess in our lives. Not in any way. He steps right in, puts his waiters on. He actually probably doesn't even have to put waiters on. Steps right in. Not even flinching. Not surprised. And he lovingly and graciously feels each and every one of our queries, our questions, our doubts, our wanderings. He's big enough to hold it and handle it all. And in those moments, we come to realize that we are fully known. And this is the mystery of these deconstruction moments that it doesn't always happen, but it often happens that it propels us into the very presence of God, where he meets us and lovingly embraces us because he's always known us. He's always had you in the hairs of his target. He was looking forward to being with you here tonight. And like the Samaritan woman, we don't have to be fixed before we come into his presence. We don't have to clean up our act to be known, to be loved by God. This is our third and our final key point tonight. And if you don't write anything else down tonight, write this down. 
take a picture of it, carry it the rest of this week and repeat it a bazillion times. God sees me and he knows me fully because he has always loved me. And he invites me to know him more fully, to seek, to explore, and to find him with all of my questions, with all of my doubts, and with all of my fears. So there's so many things that we don't know about our God. So many unknown unknowns, but God's created that mystery on purpose and he invites us to be hungry to find the truth, to not accept the, the things the way they are as the way they are, to push against the system, to ask the hard questions. You're gonna get lots of pushback from people, but you're not gonna get any pushback from God. This is actually one of the things that I really love about Pastor Chad. He's not intimidated by any questions. And it took me a while to actually realize this is a good thing to have lots of questions. So let me ask you, if you had to put together a list of everything that you know about God, how long would that list be? Could you add a couple of new things to it that you've learned tonight? And then I wanna ask you, what are the questions that you're asking God? If you're not asking any questions, something's wrong. You need a heart full of questions, of intrigue, of inquiry about who God is and what's going on around you and what he has planned for your life and for your eternal life. Then I wanna challenge us with this scripture out of 1 Corinthians. This is Paul speaking towards the end of his life as he says, you've all been to the stadium. This is the message version. You've all been to the stadium and seen the athletes race. Everyone runs, one wins. Run to win. All good athletes train hard. They do it for a gold medal that tarnishes and fades. You're after one that's gold eternally. He says, I don't know about you, but I'm running hard for the finish line. I'm giving it everything that I've got. No sloppy living for me. I'm staying alert and in top condition. I'm not gonna get caught napping, telling everyone else about, about it and then missing out on it myself. That's a great challenge for us. Would you stand with me tonight? I wanna pray for us. And then I wanna invite you to come. I'm gonna invite our prayer team to come down in front. I don't know where you're at in your life, but I sensed as I was preparing this message all week long that all of us can relate to the Samaritan woman. All of our lives overlap with her life. All of us, I'm gonna say the majority of us, have that experience of feeling unknown, lost in the crowd, uncared for. And God wants you to know that he sees you tonight. But more than that, he doesn't just see you, he loves you. Thank you, Wilbur. He loves you. He had you in his crosshairs for tonight. He had you on his calendar. She's gonna be there tonight. He's stepping into that meeting tonight. He's gonna hear about me tonight. So I wanna challenge you. Don't just walk out of here. That's too easy. 
God has something bigger for you. He has something better for you. He wants you to know him, not Christianity. He wants you to know him, Yeshua, the Messiah. He wants to engage with your heart tonight. Would you let him do it? Would you come forward and let somebody else pray with you? Would you do the hard work of talking to him there in your seats? We're gonna continue to worship. Uh, Wilbur will come up and close us and we'll go out with a worship song, but don't just leave tonight. It's too easy and God has too many good things in store for you, those who love him and call on his name. Amen.